Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Indonesian citizens and those of neighbouring Southeast Asian countries have long suffered recurring haze pollution caused by peatland fires in Indonesia. To avoid these forest fires and reduce the environmental harm and negative health impacts that transboundary haze gives rise to, Indonesia needs to restore its degraded peatlands. President Joko Widodo started this task in 2016 when he established the Peatland Restoration Agency, tasked with rehabilitating 2 million hectares of degraded peatland. What has this ad hoc body achieved since then and where will it go from here? To discuss these questions, I am joined by Dr. Rini Astuti. Rini is a research fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, where her research focuses on environmental governance and climate change in the Southeast Asian region, and Indonesia in particular. Rini obtained her PhD in geography from Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand. She's also the Global Public Voices Fellow for the Mario Ainaudi Centre on International Studies at Cornell University. Previously, she was at the Asia Research Institute, National University of Singapore where she was part of the multidisciplinary team researching forest and peatland fire and transboundary haze in Southeast Asia. Winnie, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Natalie. Yeah, thanks for having me in this podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about sustainable peatland management. Can we start with the peatlands? What are they and what does it take to maintain a healthy one? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, let's start with what is peatland? So peatland is layers of decomposed plant materials that usually when they are in their natural and pristine conditions are waterlogged. So it's supposedly stay under the water. When we talk about peatland in Indonesia, they are usually situated in low altitude in coastal areas such as in East Coast Sumatra, in Kalimantan, and in Papua. I see. And this might be an unusual question, but can you smell if a peatland is healthy? Well, <laughs> because peatland is layers of decomposed plant materials, so it's kind of like a moist and kind of like a smell like when you walk in the forest, in a tropical forest after the rain, kind of like that kind of smell. And it's acidic and it's actually very low nutrient. That's their characteristics. So kind of that damp, moist type of soil, <laughs> if I can. Um, <laughs> That's a very evocative picture. I, I hope everybody listening to this podcast is imagining being in this sort of environment. Very evocative indeed. So why are these peatlands causing such problems in Indonesia? First, we need to agree that it's not the peatland causing the problem, right? It's the humans. Ah, very good point. <laughs> yeah. In Indonesia, as well as in other countries, especially developing economy, there is this competition of land use. And one of the most important economic activity in this developing economy is agriculture. And mineral land, which is the normal land in Indonesia, has been used almost all of them for, for example, developing cities or, you know, urban areas. Then what is left is this pitland that was previously seen as 
unuseful, as unproductive because the peatland characteristic, as I mentioned before, is very low in nutrients. So peatland is not fertile. It's not good for agriculture. But then because of, you know, the competition of land use and there is not infinite supply of land, of course, people and the government, of course, the government of Indonesia start to subject the peatland in Indonesia for various development scheme. One of the most infamous and disastrous examples that I can provide is during the New Order era under the President uh, Suharto at that time, they have this scheme of converting 1 million hectares of peatland in central Kalimantan for uh, rice planting. And this was also then tied into other uh, development schemes such as uh, transmigrasi in central Kalimantan. This then resulted in socio-environmental disaster because peatland that is supposed to be kept waterlogged was drained to make them amenable or suitable for agricultural activities. So because peatland is waterlogged, not many crops can grow on this peatland, such as palm oil or bananas and rice and others. So first what they did was drain all this peatland. But when peatland is drained by making canals to then drain all this water in peatland into the ocean, peatland become dry and then susceptible to fires. That's what happened at that time. I see. So we're getting to this issue of fires. And I think you've done a really good job of explaining how the peatland comes to be so dry and so susceptible to burning, despite being originally at least a waterlogged environment. So your work does look specifically at this transboundary haze issue caused by burning peatland and by these fires. And you've said that to mitigate haze effectively and to manage peatland sustainably, Indonesia needs to adopt a hydrological scale approach. What is that? Well, in Indonesia's regulation, the government regulation defined peatland as an area of peatland that is bounded by two water bodies, can be rivers or lakes or even oceans. So this can be a very large area of peatland and can span across numerous administrative boundaries. We can talk about, you know, uh, kecamatan or subdistrict or even kabupaten or district. And when we talk about peatland management, what is happening now in Indonesia is that all of this governance of peatland is defined by these administrative boundaries because it's easier for the government because it's then tied to how budget is being governed as well, right? When we talk about all of these administrative boundaries, because each of the actor within this administrative boundary has their mandate. But when we talk about a specific ecosystem such as peatland, which has its water system, this water system cannot be bounded by this administrative boundary. It has to be treated as one ecosystem, then it requires the coordination and collaboration of all the diverse actors within this ecosystem boundary. That's what we talk about at this hydrological scale approach. It's that it's looking at peatland governance that look at all of the diverse actors across the one ecosystem and 
putting them in one uh, hybrid body of governance that work together to manage the peatland water system. Am I to understand correctly that one of the limitations preventing effective and sustainable peatland management is this question of spatial zoning and who is responsible for the peatlands and the areas around them? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what sort of stakeholder consultation and engagement would then be required to get this hydrological scale approach implemented? So the hydrological scale approach is actually also mandated in the government regulation. So the government of Indonesia itself understands the importance of this approach. But what is needed to make this happen is that there is an effort to have consultation across these different actors and acknowledging that there is unequal power relations among these actors, right? Because when we talk about a one pitland ecosystem, there can be private concessions inside of this ecosystem, such as palm oil company or acacia plantation company. And these are very powerful actors. And there are communities whose villages are situated usually around the boundaries of these large-scale corporations. And there are maybe also conservation forests. So there will be conservation agency working on this conservation forest. But usually what happens is that all of these actors are working individually, competing over the use of water in peatland. And if... The government then can work together across these different actors, acknowledging the inequality in power, but ensuring that each of the actors here have the same perspective about the need to collectively manage this pitline water system, then I guess it can happen. During my fieldwork in Riau, I came across an initiative started by an environmental NGO, WWF, which then the organization worked together with several villages. Around this village in Riau, there were one palm oil company and two acacia plantation companies that during the dry season, because they want to keep peatland water inside their concessions, then they block the water canals. So peatland water cannot then flow to the community areas because usually concession areas are situated in a higher ground compared to the community area, our community's land. So when the canals are blocked, water cannot flow to the community areas. And the community areas or community gardens become more susceptible to fire. And vice versa, during the rainy season, when the concessions area or the company's area have so much water in it that all of their crops are being submerged in water and cannot produce good crops, then they open the canals and let the water flows to the community's land and make the community's land submerge in so much water and that they cannot do anything. So this kind of dynamic then was being managed by this environmental NGO that tried to create a forum in which communities can then discuss 
and bargain their position with the concessions uh, with the companies. And then the companies actually then in the end agreed to create a better water system canals, although it was very expensive for them to do that because they have to conduct infrastructuring of the water canals. But they agreed in the end because for them, it also looks good that they did something to prevent fire and to collaborate with the communities. And, you know, the attachment with this environmental NGO was also good for their brand. So it was a win-win solution, I guess, in this particular area. And this can maybe be leveraged to other areas. Well, I really appreciate you bringing in that discussion about the impact on local communities and this example of WWF working closely with them to try and find, as you say, a win-win solution. Let me ask you about sustainability, because one of the things I was quite interested in was your recommendation that the hydrological scale approach be adopted as a sustainability standard in supply chains. What do you mean by this? Well, currently, one of the sustainability governance mechanism is through commodity supply chain, because when we talk about commodity supply chain, we talk about how customers or any users of a product or of a commodity can do so much to give pressure for the producers to improve their sustainability practices. So when I talk about adopting this pitland hydrological unit system or hydrological scale approach in sustainability standard, I'll give an example for a commodity that is usually planted on pitland in Indonesia, which is palm oil. One of the best or not, it's of course debatable, but one of the most widely recognized sustainability standard in palm oil is RSPO or Roundtable Sustainable Palm Oil Certification. And in RSPO standard, yes, they have a principle about fire prevention, but it has not mentioned about the need to also encourage the private sector who then get the certification to work collaboratively with other actors around them, which is the community, for example, to manage pitland water sustainably. So. Well, in fact, in the Indonesian government regulation itself, there is this requirement for companies, for example, to prevent fire around their concession boundaries, around two to five kilometers. But what happens is usually it means that when fire happens, then company were actively involved in fire suppression or that they pay for, you know, community-based fire patrol to then, you know, doing the monitoring around their concession boundaries. But what we want or what we encourage the companies or private sectors to do is to have this collaborative water system management. And that RSPO, because it has a very good infrastructure in place to then have that principles and then it recognizes the private sector effort to have this collaborative water system management in a way that it provides an incentive for private sector to have this collaborative water system management in place. So I mentioned the Peatland Restoration Agency initiative introduced by Jokowi in 2016 in my introduction. Does this initiative engage with the idea of the hydrological scale approach? Or or if not, what is this agency's approach? 
Yes, of course. The peatland restoration agency is very much into this idea of the peatland hydrological scale approach. And they do acknowledge the importance of working based on this principle of a one management of water system in peatland ecosystem that it cannot be based on administrative boundaries. Problem is, peatland restoration agency has limitation. According to the presidential regulation that was used as the basis for the establishment of the Pitland Restoration Agency as an ad hoc agency to manage degraded pitland in Indonesia, the agency doesn't have authority to then govern pitland that is situated inside the concession area or inside private sector plantations. So that is one of the limitations that is very big to enable the peatland restoration agency to ensure that private sector, for example, do what they need to do to manage peatland sustainably. The authority is under the Ministry of Environment and Forestry. And in the beginning of the peatland restoration agency establishment, there was tension between these two agencies in managing this authority of our governing peatland private sector concession or peatland that is situated within the concession of private sector boundaries. Yeah, it seems to be a real blind spot if that agency is not able to regulate private concessions in peatlands. Do they have any powers to compel these concessions, these private holdings to work together with the agency? No, they don't. <laughs> because <laughs> So pitland in Indonesia can be situated in the forest area or outside of the forest area. And for pitland that is inside the forest area, it means that the authority to give concession to this private sector is under the Ministry of Environment and Forestry. And for the non-forest area is under the National Land Agency, which give concession to the plantation. So authorities are under these two bodies, not under the Pitland Restoration Agency. What Pitland Restoration Agency can do is to then coordinate all of these bodies together to work on this Pitland ecosystem, right? But in Indonesia, when we talk about bureaucracy, there is this also hierarchies. So Pitland Restoration Agency is an ad hoc body established based on presidential regulation. But National Land Agency and Ministry of Environment and Forestry, both of them were established based on national law. So kind of higher in hierarchy. So kind of like, you know, there is this tension. Oh, well, your position is lower than me. You cannot instruct me to do this and that, right? So that kind of tension is there. It's a really interesting point you've made about the hierarchy there. So the agency, you know, is kind of hamstrung in being able to meet its objectives in no small part due to this hierarchy that you just outlined. But despite this, it's not only been extended, but it's been expanded and it now includes management of mangroves. Can you talk us through that decision to extend and expand its mandate? Yeah, that's a very important question. And of course, it's all based on political uh, situations that happened in Indonesia at that time. So in 2020, that was then decided by President Joko Widodo that Pitland Restoration Agency's mandate will be then extended. I guess it was because 
there was a strong pressure from civil society organization to ensure that President Jokowi, you know, uh, extend the mandate of the Pitland Restoration Agency. I mean, despite of their limitation, they did a good work. Of course, there are many criticism and, you know, we also need to appreciate the good work that the Pitland Agency has done on the ground. So Mangrove is a coastal ecosystem. So it's under his purview, right? So, and he understand, I guess, that Mangrove in Indonesia is under threat from deforestation and illegal logging. And mangrove is a very important ecosystem, both for community livelihoods and for climate change, because apart from preventing the erosion from the ocean waves, there is also a good carbon sinks. And Luhut, I think, has this view that there has to be something done about mangrove in Indonesia. He then <laughs> uh, suggested for the Pitland Agency to also then work on mangrove. I think that was the political decision why then mangrove was incorporated in the new mandate of the Pitland Agency that now is called Land and Mangrove Restoration Agency. And I guess that was also a way of Indonesian government's politics of gaining a good reputational presence in the environmental governance in the world, that the government of Indonesia need to project that it's doing something for managing its greenhouse gas emissions and preserving its forest, peatland and mangrove. Let me stop you there and ask you my last question. And that is, what will it take for the Indonesian government to govern its peatlands effectively and sustainably? That's a very big question. But uh, for me, the most important thing is for the government to step away from its business as usual practices. We have so many good regulations already. The government has already established ad hoc agency to do a lot, despite its limitation, of course. But there are so many paradox inside of the government's practices. When we talk about the recent omnibus law on job creation, for example, the government then decided to erase the strict liability principle that bind corporate actors in Indonesia for their responsibility to prevent fire. This strict liability principle was previously the government's only weapon to put private sector, large-scale, powerful private sectors in court to be responsible for fires that happen inside plantation area or inside pitline. But then the strict liability principle was being erased from the new omnibus law. And now the government need to work hard to prove if a plantation, for example, is intentionally using fire to clear their uh, land to plant new crops, for example. And that is just one example of paradox that I can give you, but there are so many others. Well, the additional paradox there is that that omnibus law has been deemed to be invalid by the Constitutional Court. And I think they have until November 2023 to revise it or update it. So those liability provisions that you're referring to, there will remain a question mark around them until the omnibus law is revised. That's true, but it doesn't mean that it's not valid for the situation on the ground, right? That the mm. private sector can still use that That's right. because that law can still be valid for their argument in the court. And apart from staying away from business as usual practices, I guess, is to 
ensure that all of the data pertaining to pitlines are open and available, and that will allow an active participation from civil society organizations in the monitoring of the pitline restoration. Because otherwise, then what can we do to ensure that all of these powerful private sectors and the vested interests that some of the government officials have with these powerful large-scale private sectors have, how can we make sure that they are in check, right? So having this monitoring in place, allowing all of this democracy to happen is important, which we are kind of lucky in, in Indonesia that this democracy happened, but good data has to be there and open and transparency has to be there to allow meaningful participation from the civil society organization. Rini, thank you so much. We haven't talked a lot about the impact of transboundary haze on Indonesian citizens or indeed on broader relationships in the region. But what you have done for us is really sketch out the complexity of effective and sustainable peatland management and you know some of the paradoxes that agencies like the Peatland Restoration Agency are facing in their attempts to manage these ecosystems better. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Natalie, for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.